Welcome to the show, folks. It is Thursday. I am David Hansen, continuing our fourth day of our interview week here on Where the Money Is. I mentioned yesterday, today we have an interview that Motley Fool co-founder Tom Gardner did with author William Thorndike, author of the book The Outsiders. Uh, talks about the eight CEOs that he profiled in this book, a uh, book that Matt and I have both read and both talked about it on the show. Hope you enjoy part one of this interview. Welcome, Tom Gardner, your Motley Fool One advisor, co-founder of The Motley Fool, here with Will Thorndike, the author of The Outsiders. Will was also somebody who graduated four years ahead of me from the same high school in Massachusetts, Stratton School. That's right. And uh, Will has written a book that, it's very funny, I have <laughs> two copies of it here, which I've read and taken notes in separately uh, because I love this book that much. It's a great playbook for understanding business and investing, capital allocation, leadership, um, how to evaluate a CEO. And so we're going to sit down here and we'll go through the book page by page with you. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Let's just start with how would you describe the premise of the book that you've written? Yeah, so I think the best analogy for the book is duplicate bridge. So I don't know, do you play mm. bridge? I don't play bridge, but I'm familiar with yeah, duplicate. So I'm, I'm yeah. a terrible bridge player. Okay, yeah. But duplicate bridge is a form of bridge in which um, a group of teams of two show up in a room. They're divided into uh, tables of four. And then each table is dealt the exact same cards in the exact same sequence. Mm -hmm. So effectively eliminating the role of luck. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the evening, the team with the most points wins. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty pure test of skill. Mm -hmm. And I would contend that in an industry over long periods of time, 20 years, which is the average tenure of the CEOs in this book, it's duplicate bridge. Mm -hmm. So if one company materially outperforms its peers, that's worthy of study. Mm. And so that, that's the pattern across the eight CEOs profiled in this book. Each of them outperformed their peer group dramatically mm. over their tenure, and then they also each outperformed Jack Welch mm. in terms of performance relative to mm. the... To what was the catalyst for writing the book? What, what, what was your, the seedling that caused you to say this is uh, more than a single study or a single company analysis? This yeah. is a broader look. So I work in the private equity business, and every two years we host a conference for our CEOs. And about 10 years ago, I raised my hand and said, I'll do one of the talks at the conference. I then had to figure out what I was going to talk about, and I'd heard about this uh, 60s era conglomerateur named Henry Singleton. And so I uh, connected with a Harvard Business School student who was entering his second year, and he agreed to do a four-credit independent study. And together we did a deep dive on uh, Singleton and his company Teledyne versus the other conglomerates of that what era. What were Teledyne's returns, ballpark? 28 years at just over 20% compounded. Hmm. With Henry Singleton as the CEO Henry Singleton throughout. was the CEO throughout, mm -hmm. and he was an extraordinary guy. And at the end, so at the end of that, I wrote it up, I gave the talk, and the student I worked with came to me and said, listen, if you enjoyed that, there's a, I know a really smart guy in the class behind me. And that first student was a Phi Beta Kappa in physics from Stanford. Hmm. So he was a high caliber guy. And hmm. The second guy was a Phi Beta in chemistry from Harvard. So I just got into this vein of super high-talented uh, second-year students at Harvard Business School mm -hmm. and worked with them to do each of the chapters. So there, there are maybe three ways that you're proposing to evaluate a CEO. One of them is the, just the overall return of the creation of value. The second is versus the market. The third is versus peers in the industry. Do you have a, do you have a view as to the ranking of those? And uh, As an investor, yeah. do you care about one of those more than the other, obviously. It could be situational if you're an institutional investor and you've got a lot of slices in your portfolio. But if you're an individual investor out there, which one of those three things do you want most and which one do you care least about? Well, I think if, you're, if your objective is to evaluate a CEO's ability, the most relevant is performance relative to the peer group. Mm -hmm. And to assess that, you need longer periods of time. 
you need more than 24 or 36 months mm -hmm. to really be able to evaluate that. Again, that typical tenure of the CEOs in the book is north of 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's the one that's going to give you the best sense for true ability relative to peers operating under similar circumstances. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the book is proposing that the CEO is an incredibly important contributor player on the stage of a business. What sort of weighting do you give that in your own investments? When you're investing in the public markets, you're running a private equity firm, but yeah. when you make public market investments, how much do you spend time on the CEO versus the competitive advantages, pricing power, and all the other factors you could look at? Yeah, so I think I would, you know, the rough weighting for me would be a third to half hmm. of the consideration. Very significant. And again, my approach as an individual investor is I run a very concentrated portfolio in my personal account and I own things for very long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So if you removed either of those constraints, I might answer your question differently. Mm -hmm. But the benefits of this set of traits um, the, uh, are greater the longer your holding period. Mm -hmm. So one way to think about it is it's a way to increase your long-term rate of compounding, mm -hmm. you know, this, this uh, set of skills, this mm -hmm. capital allocation ability. Mm -hmm. um, so. so if you were to only be holding stocks for a year, or for six months, which is tragically how long the average individual investor Much holds. less important. Or a mutual fund that's, yeah, the, the, that wouldn't be a factor, but as you lengthen your time horizon, I don't know if you know, Will, the portfolio that I run in our service is called the Everlasting Portfolio. I am mandated to hold each investment for a minimum of five years. Yeah, great. What I've actually said to the membership base is, I would be happy to have that mandated to 10 years. Yeah. In fact, yeah. the number one factor I think most people could use to improve their investment returns is simply to double their average holding period, whatever it is. I couldn't agree more. And I think the value of that, the value of that sort of a time horizon has only grown over time as all of the, as the rise of social media and high frequency trading, high frequency trading and I mean, you know, the these arguments are out there, Will, though, that you'll see, like long-term investing is dead because of these factors, because of social media, because of high frequency trading. You have to be on top of things second by second. You should be moving your firm closer to the exchange so that your yeah. transactions take one millisecond of a millisecond less than the competitors. And you're saying that that's actually creating time arbitrage and a greater opportunity for long-term investors yeah, I, than I ever firmly, before. Yeah, I firmly believe that. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at the truly great long-term investing records, mm -hmm. they're disproportionately concentrated in people with much longer holding periods mm -hmm. and typically very concentrated portfolios. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you're going to say that to find a great outsider CEO and a great investment like the ones you've outlined in the book, your holding period to really enjoy that should be minimum of five to ten years. And you know the, the quality of the business for that sort of time horizon is critical as well. I don't mm -hmm. mean to diminish that. Mm -hmm. But the value of a, you, you know, if you have a truly concentrated portfolio, you can choose, you can afford to be picky mm -hmm. about both business quality and, uh, and the management team. That's great. Uh, before I go into some of the narratives um, in the book, I want to talk a little bit about capital allocation, the factors, the five factors, or maybe there's a sixth John Malone factor of right. joint ventures, but the five factors that a CEO is looking at in terms of how to use capital and yeah. how, how we might think about that as investors. Yeah, yeah. So there are um, three basic ways you can raise capital. Just to, you know, there's, mm -hmm. you can tap your internal cash flow, mm -hmm. you can raise equity, or you can sell debt. Mm -hmm. So those are the three alternatives. And then there are only five, in the case of Malone, maybe six, but generally only five things you can do with it. Mm -hmm. You can invest in your existing operations. Mm -hmm. You can buy other companies. You can pay down debt. Mm -hmm. You can pay a dividend, or you can repurchase your shares. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. And over long periods of time, the decisions a CEO makes in choosing across those options, in choosing which levers to pull or which and which to ignore, mm -hmm. have a gigantic impact on long-term returns for shareholders. Mm -hmm. So a simple way to think about that is if you have two businesses with identical operating results, 
over 20 years, 10 years, pick your time horizon, over a longer term period of time, if the two companies pursue different capital allocation strategies, the per share results for shareholders will be wildly different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, these are circumstantial entirely, or for the fun of it, I'll put you on the spot and say, Will, would you rank those? If you were the CEO of you know, yeah. generic ABC widgets, um, I, and we know that there are going to be particular circumstances in industry or something yeah. environmental that's going to cause you to lean one way or the other. But in just a super long-term, 150-year way. Can you rank those five as being more effective in more situations and to a greater impact than others? I think it's hard to, to have an absolute weighting. I mean, you, know, you could look at this group and you could see that every single one of them did one of two things that were significant. They bought back very significant percentages of the stock over time, 30% or more mm -hmm. in seven of the eight cases. Mm -hmm. um, and they did sizable at least one, and in most cases, several sizable acquisitions, meaning uh, deals that were at least, the, at least the quarter of the size of the company at the time they were done. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's very case dependent. I mean, I think the most important thing is that they have this um, coolly rational mindset, mm -hmm. that they're sort of continually looking for the highest return option, and that circumstances are going to vary over time. Mm -hmm. In fact, over 20 years, a company can move from being a rapidly growing company to a more mature business and the, the ideal alternative will be different at the beginning versus at the end. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. So I think, it, I think it does vary. And maybe, maybe at the bottom of the list would be dividends, at least according to these yeah. eight case studies. Yeah. Th that's the most in infrequently used. Yes. Oh, sorry, that's, I think, a very fair point. I think dividends, the one common thread across this group was minimal dividends. Mm -hmm. In some cases, no dividends. You know, mm -hmm. Buffett and Singleton being sort of extreme cases mm -hmm. there. Minimal dividends, the exception, I would distinguish there's two types of dividends. Obviously, there's the standard quarterly dividend, mm -hmm. and this group generally did not, you know, stayed away from mm -hmm. quarterly dividends. Mm -hmm. um, they did occasionally pay special dividends, mm -hmm. and the special dividend is an interesting tool um, that can be used selectively at different points in time. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing about dividends they didn't like primarily was that they're so tax inefficient. Mm -hmm. This group was very, very focused on tax efficiency, which again, over longer holding periods, taxes matter. Hmm. Greatly. For, for just for the fun of it, could you give examples of misuses of those um, approaches to capital allocation? Let's say share buybacks. Uh, just a classic yeah. example of when a share buyback does not impress you. Yeah. Well, so I would say that there's a lot of attention in the news now about uh, an increasing um, number of companies who are implementing share buyback programs. Mm -hmm. And the typical so way... everyone's Henry Singleton out there. This is awesome. This every, is great news, right? No, definitely not. I mean, if you look at the... There's different ways. There's sort of two approaches to buying back shares. The most common one, and the one that almost all of the companies that are announcing buyback programs today are following, is you announce an authorization. It's usually not a very significant percentage of the company's market cap that could be, could be bought in. So it's not a large commitment. And it's implemented quarterly. Often in even quarterly um, allocations to share repurchase. Mm -hmm. And it's often designed to offset um, option issuance. Mm -hmm. the, if you look at the pattern from this group, it's entirely different than that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the very occasional, very large repurchase mm -hmm. is the pattern. I mean, a recent example of that is one of John Malone's entities, uh, Liberty Capital, in the second quarter of 2011. If you tuned into the earnings call, you found out that 11% of the shares had been retired in the last 90 days. No, yeah. you know, it's just that's, that's yeah. the pattern. It's, yeah. you know, you wait. Henry Singleton used tender offers. Mm -hmm. 
um, and bought in large chunks of stock. Mm -hmm. And they're making a call on an attractive time to buy the stock rather than a cookie cut quarterly exactly. repurchase to right. rebalance against the option grants. Exactly. So when you talk about these eight companies buying back more than 30% of their outstanding shares, is that net? I mean, it, 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 that's it, net. That's net. That's net. yeah. So that's substantial. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. How about acquisitions? Two out of three acquisitions fail. So what makes these this group so effective? Yeah, it's. I think it's the same mindset, very similar to the to the buybacks. It's this idea that um, you're patient and you're waiting for compelling opportunities, mm -hmm. and when you see them, you're prepared to act in size. Mm -hmm. So the pattern across this group was um, long periods of inactivity followed by a discrete large transaction. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Capital Cities, one of the companies in the book, the CEO there, Tom Murphy, was CEO for 29 years. He made six large deals in 29 years. Mm -hmm. Each one of them was larger than a quarter of the company's market cap at the time it was made. Mm -hmm. um, but they were very selective. Tom uh, Dick Smith at um, General Cinema did three large deals over 20 years. Mm -hmm each of which was significantly accretive. So they were, they were very careful. They waited for high probability bets, and then they, then they pounced. How about a misuse of capital in terms of reinvesting into your core business? When's that a bad idea? Uh, it's a bad idea if the returns are, if the returns are marginal, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's all about can you deploy capital in, in um, projects that have returns that are attractive, mm -hmm. you know, and, and for every company, the definition of attractive will be somewhat different, mm -hmm. but you need to be able to hit a target level of return. And often with internal projects, they're viewed as being strategic. Mm -hmm. And uh, the use of that word strategic can often mask mm -hmm. the actual Any returns in a project. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for managers to be forced to quantify mm -hmm. the returns from the projects they're proposing. Mm -hmm. um, and that all of these companies were very rigorous in how they um, how they made those decisions. Mm -hmm. Let's go through some of the stories. Um, yeah. ABC, Cap City's ABC. Maybe it's, by the way, we need to get the cup out of the way of the book so right, that everyone right. can see the book. <laughs> um, Cap City's, uh, let's just say ABC versus CBS, mm -hmm. the rowboat versus QE2. Yeah, so this is an analogy that Warren Buffett uses. So he'll take the example of um, Capital Cities, uh, which was Tom Murphy's company before it acquired ABC, and CBS. And um, he'll look at the long term difference in returns between those two companies. So uh, when, Capitals, when Tom Murphy took over Capital Cities, it owned um, five radio stations and four TV stations, all of them in very small markets. CBS, at the same time, was the dominant media business in the country. It had the highest rated broadcast network. It owned major TV and radio stations in all of the largest markets in the country, mm -hmm. Chicago, New York, LA, mm -hmm. et cetera. It had very valuable publishing and music properties. It was just a juggernaut. Mm -hmm. So at the time Murphy took over, his business was worth one sixteenth of CBS's market value. And then 28 years later, it was worth three times the value of CBS. And so over that period of time, Murphy- There's a pretty good peer comparison. It's a very right good, very good pure peer comparison. And Murphy executed this very focused kind of um, acquisition and integration strategy. He ran his businesses exceptionally well with a very decentralized, uh, operating philosophy, organizational structure, mm -hmm. uh, and CBS ran with you know 42 presidents and vice presidents, mm -hmm. and all getting areas, in limos. All getting in limos. They built a landmark skyscraper in Midtown Manhattan at enormous expense, the Black Rock Building. Mm -hmm. They diverged into other business lines. They owned the New York Yankees baseball team at one mm -hmm. point in time. They owned the toy business. 
Murphy was focused laser-like on uh, the media businesses he knew well, mm. uh, which were terrific businesses mm. that they operated very well. Let's talk Teledyne and Singletonville, and you mentioned the average company, I mean, the, the average repurchase of the eight companies in the book is around 30%, 33% maybe. Yep. Uh, Henry Singleton, a little bit higher. Yeah, Henry Singleton, so he's an interesting case. So he is, a, um, he has a very unusual background for a CEO. So he's a world-class mathematician. So at age 23, he wins something called the Putnam Medal, which is awarded to the top young mathematician in the country. So Richard Feynman, mm -hmm. the Nobel Prize winning physicist, won it later. So he, mm -hmm. he's operating at a very high level. He's an MIT PhD in electrical engineering. When he's at MIT, he programs the first, first computer at MIT mm -hmm. as his graduate, as his doctoral thesis. Mm -hmm. And so he's a he's a high running level a public company is a layup for him. Math and science guy. He mm -hmm. becomes CEO at age forty three of this conglomerate, and he proceeds to um, over the next twenty eight years at the helm. He, he buys in ninety plus percent of the shares. Mm -hmm. So no no one has ever come close to that level of stock mm -hmm. repurchase. Why are time. people not doing that? In other words, what um, th th that was controversial or truly yeah. unorthodox, as yeah. you say, and. Um, what, what would the complaints against that approach have been? So historically, buybacks were very controversial and they were perceived by Wall Street as signaling a lack of internal growth opportunities. Mm -hmm. So they were a signal of weakness. Mm -hmm. They meant that you couldn't deploy that capital in investing your existing mm -hmm. operations. And, and a high-level mathematician is looking at He's just that, looking, all the options and looking at what's, what's the best mathematical result I could get and it's absolutely. to buy back my own stock rather than to build another factory or to go out and take a risk elsewhere. Yeah, he was just continually solving for the problem of how do we create the most value per share long term. Mm -hmm. Everything Henry Singleton did was you know, viewed through that prism. Mm -hmm. Let's talk uh, general cinemas, jumping yep. around a little bit in the book. Let's talk, um, I mean, this is... Kind of, a, I, th I thought of this as I read the chapter, um, that it's almost like a slow burn Berkshire Hathaway textile business. That there is a leak in the boat yep. of, of yep. the cinema business, but it's going to take a long time for it to fail. And, and Dick Smith is getting out of that boat. Yep. I think that's a, a very good analogy. So Dick Smith, uh, who was the longtime CEO at General Cinemas, um, which was a public company, but a very small public company. His father took it public. They specialized in drive-in movie theaters, and his father died within 24 months of the company going public. Mm -hmm. So at age 37, Dick Smith inherited the CEO role, and um, he proceeded to take the business first out of drive-ins into um, suburban strip malls, and they were the pioneer in the suburban strip mall movie theater business, which for a period of time was a very good business mm -hmm. as the population post-World War II moved into the suburbs. Mm -hmm. um, and then he realized that business was maturing and he began to look for other businesses with better long-term growth prospects. And he first went into the um, Pepsi bottling business, which is a very good business, very successfully. Uh, and then... How would, how would an investor look at that and say, that's not like CBS buying the New York Yankees? It's a very good question. It's a, it's a diversifying acquisition outside of the, the core company's business. I think you can argue in this case that if uh, the core economics of the theater business, the way theater owners make their money is with concessions. Mm -hmm. so, so there is a connection. So Smith had a long-term familiarity with the beverage mm -hmm. band, uh, beverage business and mm -hmm. the power of those brands. Mm -hmm. um, and he proved to be an excellent operator mm -hmm. within the bottling business. Mm -hmm. And so they ended up buying a platform company and then successfully adding to that over time mm -hmm. and eventually selling it back to the... He was a very effective... Dick Smith was a very effective seller of businesses. Mm -hmm very opportunistic, and when he saw businesses maturing and he felt he could get paid for that, he was- he had no um, problem selling. He had no problem selling. I mean, all of these CEOs had no problem dismantling their empire. I mean, there were times to expand, 
and construct, and then there were times to um, sell off and withdraw or be patient, yeah. um, repurchase shares, which in a way is a, an act of shrinking exactly. your empire. Yeah, exactly. I mean, rather than hey, look at all the things that we can own, all the fun we can have, all the yeah. all the um, you know all the risks we can take. No, that's very true. They were all comfortable buying in shares, shrinking the share base, um, and selling or spinning off. They were active users of spinoffs. Mm. Uh, business units and also closing underperforming units. I think the two exceptions to that would be um, Buffett at Berkshire doesn't like to sell things. Mm -hmm. He will occasionally close something mm -hmm. like the textile business when it simply can't. Mm -hmm. He doesn't sustainably. Buffett earn a doesn't like to sell things. That won't pay dividends. Doesn't like to pay dividends. Doesn't like to buy back. Doesn't stock. like to buy back stock. And that's and that's kind of an interesting. I mean, it probably goes back to the Buffett partnership and his commitment to the relationships that he's built. Exactly. And in essence, he doesn't want to go out and say, exactly. I'm going to opportunistically buy the stock at a discount from the people that have been long-term holders. They may make an emotionally irrational decision to sell it to me or not realize how great our long-term prospects are. So I'm not going to be that's exactly, a share buyback guy. I think that's exactly right. You know, they, they talk about this long-term web of deserved trust that they're trying to build at Berkshire. You know, he and Charlie Munger talk about that, and I think he feels as though that would, that would pick at that. Mm -hmm. But he has announced, interestingly, you know, a couple of times, mm -hmm. parameters around which he would do buybacks, mm -hmm. and he actually succeeded in buying in some shares, mm -hmm. you know, not an enormous amount relative to the market cap, mm -hmm. but over the last 18 months, he's had the first real buyback ever in the mm -hmm. company's history. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Kay Graham, the first, the first time CEO. I mean, it's true of yep. all of these CEOs. They're this all. is their first time as CEO. They're not being recruited by Spencer Stewart to jump from one organization and one industry to the next. Right. They're, they're in for 20 plus years. That's right. I think that's one of the most surprising findings of the book, mm. is that all of these CEOs are first time CEOs. Mm. Um, only two had MBAs, mm -hmm. half not yet 40 when they got the job. Mm -hmm. And Kay Graham is the most extreme example of that because she inherits the CEO role after her husband commits suicide, tragically. She hasn't held a job in almost 20 years. Mm. So she finds herself the only CEO of a Fortune 500, only female CEO of a Fortune 500 sized company. And she hasn't been in the workforce in almost 20 years. And she proceeds to put up far and away the best operating results and, uh, and value creation of any, any uh, CEO in the newspaper industry over the next 25 years. Why do you think this is? Why, why, why is the first time CEO non-MBA under the age of 50 or even 40? Um, an effective leader of a public company? I think it um, relates to the power of fresh eyes, freshness of perspective, mm -hmm. the ability to look at uh, industry circumstances um, objectively mm -hmm. and to not be uh, caught up in industry conventional wisdom mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and to be purely rational about these decisions mm -hmm. as a result. Mm -hmm. Ralston Purina and maybe uh, a, a concept that's stood out to me in that chapter is if you've got a highly predictable business, you should very seriously consider using debt. Yeah, absolutely. And Sturitz was the, Bill Sturitz, who was the CEO of Ralston Purina, was um, the first CEO in the consumer products area to, to kind of really understand mm -hmm. that and to run those businesses almost like a public LBO mm -hmm. uh, in the early days of when those concepts were, were sort of gaining acceptance in the private equity world. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's an interesting case because he's the only one of the eight who was an insider. Mm -hmm. So he grew up through the, came up through the ranks at Ralston Purina. Mm -hmm. And once he became CEO, he turned out to be um, yeah, very independent. Do you think it's possible that this is also a playbook for succession planning for, for executives? Um, the CEOs that I've talked to that are outsider-like or innovative 
long-term CEOs, 20 plus years. Um, I think their tendency is, turn, is to turn to the right-hand person they've been working with, who may also be in their late 50s or early 60s, maybe an operating mind more than the investor yep. type. And in my conversations, what I've advocated from my position as a fool um, is what about a very youthful, more visionary investor mindset, investor-oriented um, candidate who could now take over for the next 25 years. If you pick somebody who's 61 years old or 64 years old, it's likely it's going to be a, one of the five to seven-year tenure CEOs. And that worked at General Dynamics, which is the last company I want to mention. Yeah, but, yeah. but I wonder if you've thought that this is a, also a blueprint for how to think about your successor. I think it is. I think it's a very interesting. I think that's an interesting idea. I think it is a blueprint. I think it's hard to implement that. Mm. I think that's the. You have to have uh, enough independence, enough credibility with your board to be able to make an unconventional succession decision. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's. So you boards just, are set up not to do that. Boards are set up to make to that hard risk. to make that hard to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's increasingly true post Sarbanes Oxley. Boards are increasingly risk averse. Mm -hmm. um, so. Let's talk general dynamics. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of applying the John Malone line here, but uh, this was this was a company that was also lower than whale dung yes. when when yes. Uh, when the turnaround began. So uh, talk a little bit about some of the decisions that went into creating such an. I mean, the returns to General Dynamics have been extraordinary. Yeah, extraordinary. Well, so um, Bill Anders took over at General Dynamics at probably the lowest point that in the defense industry in the uh, last 60 years in the defense industry immediately after the Berlin Wall came down, and it was apparent that defense spending was going to be cut very dramatically and that that whole paradigm of what you spend money on within the defense budget was going to change. Mm. And General Dynamics was positioned with large programs you know, that were specifically designed to counter the Soviet threat that was now gone. And so um, that's a tough circumstance. And Anders quickly moved to the idea They that were also negative cash flow had with negative, a massive amount of debt. They had a lot of debt. They had negative cash flow. They were just generally poorly positioned. Mm -hmm. And he sort of looked at that and he quickly came to the conclusion that uh, they had a variety of business lines and they needed to ruthlessly look at them mm -hmm. and decide which business lines they were existing leaders in and could build off of mm -hmm. and which they weren't. And they needed to exit from the latter and build on the former. Mm -hmm. So he proceeded to very quickly move to sell off businesses where the company wasn't a leader and to try to, to build on those where it was. Mm -hmm. Ironically, in some of the business lines where it was a leader, when he went out to try to buy other companies to, to enhance the leadership position, those CEOs tried to were interested in buying him. Hmm. So he then was faced with this conundrum of what to do, and he ended up being very rational and selling when he got prices hmm. that were mm -hmm. extraordinary. So he rationalized the company's businesses. Hmm. Um, he also ran the existing business better than it had been run. It had been run in a way that was very capital inefficient. Mm -hmm. So he tightened the operations, and the result of all that was a tsunami of cash. A wave of cash came into the company, and they then had to figure out how to allocate that. And unlike um, the historic pattern in the defense business, they chose to do a very large buyback, mm -hmm. series of them. They bought in 30% of the shares. Never had happened in the industry. Never happened in the industry before. And then they paid a series of very large special dividends, mm -hmm. which they were able to do in a tax-advantaged way. Mm -hmm. So wildly different than anything that had ever occurred in the industry before. And uh, Sometimes that it attracted takes, Warren Buffett's attention, actually, mm -hmm. yeah, interestingly. Sometimes it takes being lower than whale dung to, I, I just interviewed Malcolm Gladwell about a week and a half ago, yeah. and it's essentially, you, if your back is against the wall, you got nothing to lose, your board is perhaps more willing to be unorthodox or to accept um, an outlier approach 
and that can be the thing that unlocks a tsunami of cash flow in a business that looks like it almost has to go into bankruptcy. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm. I think that's right. I think mm. the circumstances helped, helped him. Mm. That is our show for today. We will be back tomorrow with the second part of this interview that Tom did with William Thorndike. We will see you then. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.